This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. Today's scripture is from Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift up their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. This is God's word. Do you ever recall a time when driving out there, maybe probably in a big city, the only way this is going to work, it's got to be a big city, and uh, maybe an unfamiliar place, and you thought to yourself, you know, I'm kind of hungry, let me just get off on this exit here, go get a bite to eat quick, and then get back on the road, only to discover that the exit you took just leads to another highway, and you're off running. Ever, ever experienced that? I have heard, I've not experienced this, but I have heard that the, the, the roads around Newark Airport out east are just like this. You think you can get off and stop for a bite or some gas or whatever, but you cannot get back on. Once you've got off, you're, you're, not, you're not getting back on. Temptation is much like that. Temptation is an exit ramp from the road that God's called you to be on. Temptation is like saying, well, if I get off here, I can always get back on. I can always repent, but you find that you can't. You can't get back on. So we're gonna be looking at this topic of temptation from Matthew 4. We're gonna look at three aspects to it. We're gonna look at the inevitability of temptation, the strategies of the devil, and how to defeat it. The inevitability of temptation, the strategies of the devil, and how to defeat it. First, the inevitability of temptation. It's especially important for Christian believers to hear this because we tend to make a mistake about it. We don't necessarily see the inevitability of temptation because Christian believers are prone to think to themselves, uh, I'm, I'm doing something wrong if I'm being tempted. I shouldn't be having these kinds of thoughts. I shouldn't be feeling these, this kind of pressure to get on the exit ramp. If I was a really strong Christian, if my heart was pure, I wouldn't be having all these thoughts and these pressures and conflicts and wrestling. As Christian believers, we're prone to think this way. 
But I want you to imagine your heart baptized with the Holy Spirit, completely filled with the Holy Spirit so that your heart is perfectly pure. How would your life go then? Hmm? Would you think, ah, you know, then things would be better. Then, then there wouldn't be this conflict. There wouldn't be this temptation. All these terrible things wouldn't, wouldn't be happening. But somebody actually did live this way. Only one person. And we know that this person had a heart baptized of the Holy Spirit, led by the Spirit. Absolutely pure. But it also meant that he was headed right for temptation. The more Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit, the more he attracted the forces of darkness. Temptation is inevitable. You have to come to grips with it. Now listen, in the Christian world, we have what's called a retreat, where you escape the hustle and bustle of life and get alone with God, right? We've got that thing called a retreat. Now it's good to build into your life if you haven't already, uh, this kind of thing. In Luke's gospel, we're told that Jesus often withdrew to solitary places alone to pray. But don't make the mistake in thinking that withdrawing from society, withdrawing from the city, withdrawing from the hustle and bustle of life means that the devil will leave you alone. <laughs> because Jesus withdrew out into the wilderness. He's in God's country away from civilization, and the devil just followed him there. See, some people think they can get away from temptation if they would just relocate. They think, I wouldn't be having these temptations if I lived in a different place or I moved out of the city into a, a tiny rural farmland community. Now look, sometimes you have to get rid of circumstances. If you're in a terrible, terrible job where you're tempted continually to, to hate your boss because he or she's a terrible boss, get another job. I'm not saying you shouldn't do that. What I am saying is that it's a mistake, a real mistake, to conclude your struggles with temptation are purely environmental. You hear me? It's a mistake to conclude your struggles with temptation are purely environmental. It's a mistake to conclude your struggles with temptation are circumstantial. It's a mistake to say to yourself, if my heart was just right, I wouldn't be having these kinds of pressures. Jesus had these pressures all over. And Jesus was fuller of the Holy Spirit than anyone ever. His heart was purer than anyone ever. He's away from the hustle and bustle of life. He's out in God's country and he's facing one temptation after another. So let's ponder this for a minute. If you have a tranquil life, if you have a comfortable life, if you have a life without warfare, without struggles, without conflict, without temptation, you've actually already gotten on the exit ramp. You're on the exit ramp. You've given up. You've given up on pursuing God. You've given up on pursuing people. If you don't have temptations, you've fallen prey already to the big one. You've opted out. See, if you're baptized with the Holy Spirit, if you're led of the Spirit, if you're filled with the Spirit, there's Satan. There's temptation. It's inevitable. Second, the strategies of the devil. Now, religious people tend to be prudish about temptation. We're squeamish about it in certain pockets of Christianity today. When Christians hear the word temptation, they automatically think about lust. That's it. Now, if you think the heart of temptation is lust, that's a mistake. When Satan, when the devil wanted to tempt Jesus, he did not take him to the red light district. Did you notice that? It's pathetic for Martin Scorsese to think that sex is the final temptation. There is no Godspell thing going on here. 
He doesn't take him to the red light district, nor does he say to Jesus, hey, Jesus, it's Friday night, let's go out and get drunk. No, when the devil wants to tempt Jesus, he doesn't offer sex, he doesn't offer alcohol. He tempts him with three things. First, bread. Bread? Yes, bread. What's wrong with bread? Second, he tempts him with safety. Ask God to keep you from dashing your foot when you fall. Safety, what's wrong with safety? Third is power. The devil says, I can give you all the kingdoms of the world. Now maybe, listen, maybe for us, it wouldn't be good or fair or right for us to be given that, right? We, we, you and I are not cut out to be king of the world or queen of the world. But Jesus was. In fact, it's explicit he came to be king of the world. So what the devil offers him here for Jesus is also a very good thing. He came to be that anyway. See, the real temptations are not bad things. The real temptations are not bad things. Satan is offering Jesus good things. But if he gets these good things now, or in this manner, he's turning these good things into ultimate things. Let me dive a little deeper into this. When the devil tempts Jesus with turning the stones into bread, Jesus responds by quoting Deuteronomy 8 verse three. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So Deuteronomy, the book of Deuteronomy is a series of sermons that Moses preached to the people of Israel as they were on the precipice of entering the promised land. And he's reminding them of some things. He wants things to go well with them in their new land. And so he gives them a number of exhortations in this sermon series. And this particular one, Deuteronomy 8, is actually hearkening back to, farther back to something that happened in Exodus 16. In Exodus 16, the Israelites are in the wilderness. They're out of Egypt, but they're not in the promised land. They've run out of food, they're hungry, and God tells them each morning he's gonna provide bread for them. It's gonna appear on the ground. They were to collect only what they needed for that day. Only what they needed for that day. Then on the sixth day, they were to collect twice as much, so they'd have enough for the seventh day without having to collect on the seventh day. What happened? On days one through five, some people collected more than what they needed for that particular day. They tried to store some of it away for the next day, but when they got up the next morning, the bread was full of maggots. Some even went out on the seventh day to gather food, but they found none. And after God watched this unfold, what did he say? How long will you refuse to keep my commands and my instructions? That was God's comment on their behavior. What would have prompted the Israelites not to follow God's instructions about bread collection? What was it? Distrust, right? You wake up in the morning, you've been very hungry. There's lots of bread on the ground out in front of you. There's plenty of it. You see, you go think to yourself, wow, this is great, fantastic. We're gonna eat a lot, we're gonna be full. Will there be some tomorrow? I don't know, what do you think? There'll be some tomorrow? I don't know. Let's get a little bit of extra just in case. Does that help us understand the nature of the devil's test? Yeah. For Jesus to have turned the stones into bread would have been an expression of distrust in his father's ability and concern to provide food for his son in his time. Jesus would be elevating a good thing, a good thing, into an ultimate thing by providing for himself in his way and in his time rather than exercising faith that God would provide for him in his way and in his time. Something wrong with eating bread. Jesus ate it eventually, but Jesus is saying it's wrong for him to eat bread before the time is right. It would be wrong for him to eat bread in this manner. And you know what? A lot of sin and temptation works this way. A lot of sin and temptation works this way. 
There's nothing wrong with sex. Sex is a good thing. But it's, if it's partaken of before the time is right, before the marriage covenant has been established, the good thing has become an ultimate thing and the devil wins. There's nothing wrong with money and enjoying the gifts that God gives us through money. But if the acquisition of money shifts from being a good thing to being an ultimate thing, then we begin to take shortcuts in getting more of it. We cook the books, we cheat on our taxes, we get stingy in our giving, we sacrifice family and church to work more. There's nothing with with advocating for causes supported by a biblical ethic. We should work to change laws and ordinances that discriminate based on ethnicity. We should work to change laws that allow for the killing of unborn children. But when our causes, which are good things, become ultimate things, we can become people who show contempt and disdain for those who don't share our passion for those things. See, the devil's strategy most often won't be to lure you to the red light district or a bar. It'll be to get you to elevate a good thing into an ultimate thing. That's his strategy. Locate something that's a good thing in your life and try to get it to be a little bit more of a passionate thing for you. Look, the the best imagery in popular culture that I know of for this is in Lord of the Rings, okay? So let's dive into Lord of the Rings. Okay, the centerpiece, the central plot device of the story is what? The ring. Dark Lord Sauron's ring of power. What happens? It corrupts anyone who tries to use it. However good his or her intentions may be, the the ring takes the heart's fondest desires and magnifies them to idolatrous proportions. That's what happens with the ring. You put the ring on, it magnifies the the heart's fondest desires and it it promotes it to idolatrous proportions. So, So some of the examples in the book, you've got some good characters in the book who want to liberate slaves. They want to preserve their people's land or they want to visit wrongdoers with just punishment. They're all good objectives, but what happens when they're wearing the ring? It makes them willing to do anything to achieve that, anything at all. It turns the good thing into an absolute that that overturns every other allegiance and value. The wearer of the ring becomes increasingly enslaved and addicted to it because an idol is something we can't live without. We have to have it. And therefore, it drives us to break rules we once honored. It drives us to harm others. This is what idolatry is. It enslaves us. It it causes our heart's desires to grow, to magnify until we have to have it. And then we start breaking rules we once honored. We start harming people in order to get that thing. See, the devil's strategy mostly isn't to take us into a red light district or to bars, but to present before us good things and to heighten our appetites for those good things so that we break rules we once honored and mistreat others in order to get them. Let me put it more provocatively than that. How do you turn a human being into a demon? How do you turn a human being into a demon? You get them to elevate a good thing into an ultimate thing. You get them to elevate a good thing into an ultimate thing. When a good thing in your life, look up here, When a good thing in your life becomes a gotta have it thing in your life, you will become demonic. When a good thing in your life becomes a gotta have it thing in your life, you will become demonic. It's 2020. This is gonna play out for months to come. Third, how do we defeat it? Well, how did Jesus defeat the devil? 
He uses scripture every time, every time. And we see two aspects to his use of scripture. He uses the means of scripture and he uses the message of scripture. There's two aspects to his use of it. The means of scripture and the message of scripture. The means of scripture is the scripture itself. Jesus quotes scripture every time. Every time the devil comes to him with another test, Jesus quotes scripture. He quotes Deuteronomy 8 and Deuteronomy 6 twice. And he quotes these passages very carefully. And he always does this, especially in times of extremity and crisis. This is not a unique thing that happens in Jesus' life just here in Matthew 4. It happens throughout. Whenever Jesus is in a time of crisis, he always gets out the scripture. The most obvious place, where was the most obvious place where Jesus was in a condition of extremity and crisis? The cross. And what do we see him doing there? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A quote from Psalm 22. The very last words out of Jesus' mouth, according to Luke, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. It's a quote from Psalm 31. In times of extremity and crisis, Jesus is quoting scripture. Now let's do a quick thought experiment together. Most of the time when you're with other people, you are aware of who you ought to be and how you ought to be. (laughs) And so you pull yourself together and try to be the person you ought to be or the person you wish to be or the person you're expected to be. Isn't that generally the case? Yes? But if you're in agony... If you're in pain, if you're in a crisis, if you're looking at death in the face and you're screaming and you're crying out, you're not trying to be whomever you think you ought to be or what other people expect you to be, are you? You're just being who you are. At that point, when your extremity in crisis, whatever is in you is just coming out. The real you is coming out. I've got a pastor friend who tells a marvelous story. At 43 years of age, 42 years of age, he had a massive heart attack. Uh, triple bypass surgery. He lost a ton of blood in the process. And he's in the hospital shortly after his surgery. One of the elders comes to visit him. Okay, 42-year-old pastor. One of the elders comes to visit him. And you gotta understand, the pastor's in a lot of pain. This is brutal. But the elder starts praying. And he prays. And he prays. And he prays. And he prays. And finally, the pastor interrupted him and said, Mel, can you just go away? When you're in pain, when you're in a place of crisis and agony, you're crying out, whatever's in there is coming out. You're not thinking about who you ought to be. Now let's look at Jesus. When Jesus was in these moments of agony and crisis, what's coming out? Scripture. Which means he was completely and thoroughly permeated and saturated with Scripture. It was his food, it was his drink. He was virtually bleeding scripture. Scripture was that crucial to who he was. It was that crucial to how he thought. It was that crucial to how he felt. Whenever crisis hit, he automatically went to scripture and it guides him and empowers him. But listen, he doesn't just trot out scripture and recite it. You know, wave it around, you know, all around him like you would garlic with a vampire. It's not just the means of scripture, it's also the message of scripture. Jesus knows it's the message of scripture. For example, when Jesus responds to the devil's final test, he quotes Deuteronomy 6. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Is Jesus just reciting a verse? No, he's not just reciting a verse. 
He's looking the devil in the eye and he's saying, you're lying. You're lying. You're trying to convince me that if I put this thing ahead of God, everything will be okay. But in quoting Deuteronomy 6, Jesus is expressing heartfelt, deep belief, which says that if he puts this thing ahead of God, it will destroy him. See, Satan can't hurt you. He cannot hurt you unless he can get into your head false beliefs and lies. Think about this. What makes you who you are? What determines how you think, how you feel, and how you act are what your main beliefs are. Underneath, cut it all the way, cut it all the way. Who you are is comprised of what you really believe. Your main beliefs about God, yourself, your world are what make you who you are. Your most fundamental beliefs are what determine who you are. So in moments of temptation, the devil comes along. And what do you think he's going to try to do? He's not going to try to leave fang marks in your flesh. He's going to leave lies in your heart. The devil can't hurt you unless he can get, listen, the devil can't hurt you unless he can get some idea deep down into you that shapes your fundamental beliefs. The devil can't hurt you unless he can get some idea deep down into you until it becomes your fundamental belief. He can't hurt you unless you believe his lies. He wants to shape your fundamental beliefs. This is why the message of scripture is so important. It's not enough to recite it. The devil recites scripture. He does so in this story and it's verbatim. The scripture, Satan has more scripture memorized than any of us do. He doesn't believe the message of the scripture. This is why the message of scripture is so important. The message of scripture has to sink down deep into you so that it shapes your fundamental beliefs and you're able to spot the lies when the devil presents them to you. So let's get practical on this. How does this work in life? When some of you were growing up, you were told or it was implied to you that you'll never amount to anything. You heard it, it was implied to you, the message was received, you'll never amount to anything. You know, that's a whisper from the devil. And for many of you, that whisper has sunk down deep into you. And it's a fundamental belief you now have. And it makes you who you are. You're driven, you're easily irritated, you make people around you feel used. Because that belief is deep down in there. When some of you were growing up, you were either told or it was implied to you that you're not worthy of affection, that you're unlovable. That's a whisper from the devil that has sunk down deep into you. It's a fundamental belief you now have and it makes you who you are. You dress yourself up to put on an outward appearance everybody notices, it makes you worthy of affection. Why? Because that belief is deep down in there. See, the devil tries to get an idea deep down into you that shapes your fundamental beliefs. And you're not gonna be able to resist it unless you do what Jesus did. The message of scripture, not just the means of scripture, the message of scripture, not just the words of scripture, the message of scripture has to get down deep into you so that it radically shapes your fundamental beliefs and that your fundamental beliefs are able to spot the lies the devil's trying to get, trying to get you to buy into. Now lastly, underneath all these lies, the devil tries to plant into you a single lie, one lie, the mother of all lies, the supreme lie. You know what that is? 
that you have to or can prove yourself. That you can or you have to prove yourself. That you can accomplish your own existential settledness. That you can accomplish your own state of okayness. That you can prove yourself. That's the supreme lie. It goes like this. If I look like this, then I'll know I'm somebody. If I can accomplish this, then I'll know I'm somebody. If I can get these people to accept me, then I'll know I'm somebody. If I can do this, then I'll know I'm somebody. It's the number one lie the devil tries to plant deep down into you. That, that I can achieve my own state of okayness through my efforts. You'll never achieve it. You'll never look good enough to, to, to prove yourself. You'll never accomplish enough to prove yourself. You'll never be liked enough to prove yourself. You'll never get enough done to prove yourself. And that brings us to the bigger reason for this story. There's a bigger reason for this story than Jesus modeling how to overcome temptation. And let me get at this one grand reason for the story by firing off some questions, okay? Track with me here. Here's some questions. At the outset of the story, we read, the Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness for this time of testing. Why? Second question. At the end of the testing, Jesus commands the devil to leave and he does so. Why wait until the end? Why not do that right away if he's subject to your authority? Here's another question. When the angels announce Jesus' birth, they call him a savior. In being a savior, why did Jesus not bypass infancy, childhood, adolescence, or adulthood on his way to the cross? Why didn't Jesus arrive on a Friday as an, azult, as an adult, arrive on a Friday as an adult, die, rise again three days later, take care of the cross, the resurrection, a single weekend? What was necessary about the life of Jesus from the manger all the way to the cross for the salvation of his people? One more question. Jesus is led by the Spirit of God into the wilderness to be tempted. In contrast, the disciples, we are instructed to pray that we may not be led into temptation. So what was appropriate for Jesus was not appropriate for the disciples. Why? There are the questions. Let me answer them all. Simply. You've heard me define the gospel this way before, but hopefully this will make more sense. This is the definition I'm trying to work, my wife and I are trying to work into our children. What is the gospel? Jesus lived the life I should have lived and died the death I should have died. That one simple sentence opens up an enormous box of beautiful truths. What's the gospel? Jesus lived the life I should have lived and died the death I should have died. The testing of Jesus in the wilderness is all about establishing the first part of this definition. Jesus lived the life I should have lived. Jesus accomplished in the wilderness what I will never be able to accomplish. Paul sees this and he speaks of it in Romans 5. For just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man the many will be made righteous. You see it? For just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man the many will be made righteous. There it is. That's the necessity of Jesus living through infancy, childhood, adolescence, and adulthood. See, Jesus' death wasn't enough to make you righteous. Let me say it again. Jesus' death wasn't enough to make you righteous. 
His obedient life was needed to make you righteous. Through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. So Jesus entered the wilderness, starving, weak, emaciated, alone, where he was tempted to use his power in self-serving ways, but if he had done so, it would have spelled doom for us because we needed the righteousness Jesus developed in this time of testing. Fighting off the devil's schemes, he won for you righteousness. He won for you righteousness. See, the devil's number one lie he's trying to get you to believe is that you can prove yourself or you have to prove yourself. But Jesus' testing in the wilderness is the belief that has to get down deep into you. So when the devil comes to you and says, prove yourself, your answer is, liar. I don't have to. Jesus did that for me away with you. Let's pray. So what about you? Are you under the crushing weight of the devil's lie that says you have to prove yourself? Have you seen evidence you're under the crushing weight of proving yourself and the fact that you're breaking rules you once honored Cease from your strivings. Rest in the perfect record of righteousness Jesus accomplished for you. Jesus, you lived the life we fail repeatedly to live. But because of your perfect record, we're made righteous in the sight of God. What an incredible gift. So we respond by standing in awe of you. We respond by offering our loftiest praise to you. Which includes giving you our very lives. For your honor, Jesus, we pray. Amen.